Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you look at the mortality of seasonal flu, the thing that you and I go through every season, the mortality is about 0.1%. That's a lot. And we get used to that morbidity and mortality. But the mortality of this is about 10 times that. It's at least 1%. So it's, it, it's a disease that not only is easily spread, but it can be devastating, particularly for a certain subset of the population. I can breathe. We're protesting without any violence. Any. We're moms. We're not doing anything but protesting for the right to be treated equal. Period. We're not defenseless against this virus. We have a powerful tool, a powerful weapon. That is social distancing. You're driving me crazy. We're asking everybody that... When you are not able to socially distance, wear a mask, get a mask. Uh, whether you like the mask or not, uh, they have an impact, they'll have an effect, and we need everything we can get. Oh boy, do we ever need everything we can get. Ay, 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 ay. Well, good morning, everybody. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, I know the feeling. Good morning, this is Bob Solter. Welcome to our program here on uh, WFAN, and yes... I'm coming to you from the studios of WFAN. As I said um, last time that I was here on a Sunday morning, it's kind of lonely around here. My goodness. You can hear a pin drop in this building, practically. Well, on our program today, we have some uh, interesting times. Hopefully have a little bit of fun um, and get into an area that we haven't been able to visit for some time, in large part because of some of the uh, concerns, restrictions, et cetera, surrounding the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Um, you know, everybody has been impacted in one fashion or another in their lives by this. I'm certainly among those. And we're all... Careful, or as careful as we possibly can be, I guess. Um, many of us are probably, to be bluntly honest with you, tired of this 
by now. And as I said to some of my college students back in March, I am so sick and tired of washing my hands over and over and over and over again. It feels like it just, it just never ends. So what I did this morning to get us started, hour one of our program, we're going to do something we haven't done in a long time here, and that is I'm going to open the phones. I purposely did not schedule a guest during this first hour of the program because we haven't had the chance to be able to talk and let you express the thoughts that are on your mind. This has been a monumental year thus far, and relatively speaking, we have no idea what the next couple of months hold for us as a country, as the world, because this virus continues to be basically out of control in a large portion of the country. The situation with uh, unemployment is also something that is at best troubling, and that's a great understatement as well. And we have a number of other issues uh, to deal with in terms of civil unrest, um, many of the concerns around culture, concerns about discrimination, prejudice, racism, to a large extent, a lot of that coming in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the outgrowth of protests, demonstrations throughout the summer, some peaceful, some not. Um, a lot of things happening in this city. And then the thing that is a constant concern here is this increase in violence, specifically shootings, being way up in New York City and most metropolitan areas in this country. And exactly what, if anything, realistically, can be done about that? We hear the president, Donald Trump, talk on a fairly consistent basis about the importance of sending in federal law enforcement as a way of getting a handle on addressing, controlling some of the violence. Um, we hear very often this term used that the federal officers are there to protect federal property. There are a lot of concerns that are raised beyond that kind of task on their part. And I'm interested in getting some of your thoughts on this today. So what we'll do here is open up the phones. Our number here at The Fan, of course, 877-337-6666. You want to join us in the discussion 
jump in on any of those topics or you want to bring up something else, go right ahead. I haven't been able to um, get into this kind of discussion with you in a while. Um, I have wanted to very much, and I have a feeling that we are on the cusp of a very lively hour of our program. Second hour of our show today will be joined by the gentleman who heads up AHRC in New York City. Find out about that organization. We'll also be talking about the 30th anniversary of the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, too. He has some interesting insights to share with us on our program. Again, our number here at the fan, 877-337-6666. And I'll tell you what, let's start with folks on the phone. Uh, first, we go to ooh, Ed in East Meadow. Ed, good morning. Welcome good to the mo- fan. Good morning, Bob. I appreciate being the first call. I've enjoyed listening to you all these years. Uh, you know, I appreciate you opening the phones. I, um, I'm a clinical social worker. I've been one for 50 years. And I've been real concerned, you know, how the COVID-19 has affected people um, with the anxiety, with depression, people that even haven't had it in the past. And one of the things that I've been encouraging people to do, including myself, is not to watch uh, the news as much and to find things that they feel in control. So I have never gone to YouTube as much as I have in the last four months. Uh, I've been listening to old music from the 70s, Jane Oliver, Laura Neal, the Moody Blues. And I've also been... um, uh, you know, listening to uh, discovered the comedians and been laughing and so on. So I think that I encourage people uh, not to be afraid uh, to go out. If they don't want to, uh, you know, go anywhere, get into your car and take a ride and just go by a place like the water or something. So I think those are the things I think that people have to do to take some control over something that we have no uh, control over with the COVID-19. The other thing I wanted to say to you, um, you know, I spent 15 years working in the South Bronx as a social worker, and I saw what the uh, looting and the blackout and the rioting did to the South Bronx and uh, after King uh, got assassinated and also in 77 after the first blackout. I'm all for protesting. I protested in the past, but I'm not for rioting. I'm not for looting. And I think there's a simple solution in dealing with this um, whole police matter. Every policeman and woman from the commander on down needs to wear a body camera. And I think that if uh, there are police that uh, do things that are illegal, they need to be prosecuted, uh, fired, and uh, put in jail if if needed. Uh, But to say that uh, blue lives don't matter, I think is wrong. And uh, I will never know what it's like to be a black person. I can't know what it's like for you and others. But I think that we have to also look at how this has affected uh, other people, What's, what, where people have, uh, what people have done to Chinese people since this happened, uh, what people have done to Muslims after 9-1-1, and also uh, the, the Jews in Brooklyn and in other places around the country. So those are some of the things I wanted to share with you. And appreciate your uh, thoughts and your insight there. Thank you very much for calling. Stay well. You too, my friend. Thank you. Right. 877-337-6666 is our number. As I said, we've got the phones open this morning. There's a whole lot of things to talk about. This has been one heck of a start to the year. Very eventful. You can jump in on any of those topics. You want to bring up one of your own? Go right ahead. Uh, let's see. Back to the phone. We go to Heather in uh, Jackson. Heather, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hi. Good morning. Um, just my question is, why would you tell your your college students that you're sick and tired of washing your hands? 
because it's something that um, literally was driving me crazy doing it over and over and over again. And now, hey, the re- I'm a nurse. now the reality of I it, he- Heather, is yes, it's important to do. Okay, um, I was saying this facetiously. Obviously, I've continued doing this. Um, I I think that you know a lot of us probably have just gotten overwhelmed by this. What's the reality of what you're what you're seeing? I'm a nurse, and I've been going three, four days a week, 12 hours a day. And I was just really turned off when I heard you say that you were tired, but whatever. Sounds great. Keep it up. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your call this morning, and thank you for questioning me on that, too. Uh, 877-337-6666, our number here at The Fan. You want to jump in on some thoughts along the lines of um, talking about COVID-19. You want to talk about um, some of the Black Lives Matter concerns that have been raised. Some of the people who have talked about the idea of Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Um, You want to jump in in any of those areas, feel free. It's open phones this hour of our program. Uh, next, we go to uh, Rob in Lake Success. Rob, good morning. Welcome to the oh, fan. Oh, good morning, my friend. It's been been a while, and you know I've been listening in, you know, throughout uh, this whole this whole uh, pandemic. Because uh, you know I brought it up uh, a few times over over the months um, on a couple of different shows. Um, I actually had the virus. Uh, one of the earlier people that uh, came down with it, I believe I caught it in Florida, uh, coming back on a flight, and uh, got sick about oh about three days later. I had a sore throat. Uh, mild temperature, about 99 degrees to about 100, uh, and the shakes and the flu type symptoms only for about three days. It, it really felt like I was getting the flu. I went to the doctor. At that time, there was no uh, uh, testing. It was right before the testing kind of came out. And uh, they said, yeah, negative flu. And then I had this wild cough for about two weeks, uh, which was very dry, bone dry, but I must tell you, I'm one of the lucky ones. Uh, I fought it off very quickly. In two weeks, it was gone. Um, I found out later on when people were starting to come down with the earlier symptoms, which has changed many different versions of this virus. People were getting the taste and the sweat, smell, uh, lack of that. I didn't have that. I just had really the most noticeable thing to me was the cough. Um, it was a very bone-dry cough. And uh, I never had anything like that. And I'm a runner, you know that. I, I run. Mm-hmm. I, I actually was able to run through most of the time. I once the fever broke, I was able to continue. And 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 I said, you know, I just got. I, I don't know what's going on here. Turns out I am carrying antibodies. And how long they last? Who knows? But I just want to let you know out there, people. It, you know, it, even now I'm wearing a mask. I could be covered. I might be immune to this at this point going forward. But I'm still doing what they, to protect my wife, who, to protect my, my daughter who's home, she's going to be going back to college, and to protect society, because I don't know myself if I can contract it again. And I think that's part of the message out there. Now, I'm lucky. I had, it was easy for me, but that doesn't mean it can be easy for anybody else. I am doing great, but we don't hear enough, Bob, about the thousands and thousands and thousands of people like myself who have contracted it, and have done well, and are now doing well. And I think more of that should be uh, should be talked about. That this is a serious disease, but it's something that fortunately most of us are going to get through. But sadly, we still must be very, very careful for the people that 
you know, can get sick and possibly, you know, it could become very, very, uh, very serious scope for those type of people. And I just want to share that today. And thank you for your service as always. Well, let let me ask you a question. Hang on for a second, because, you know, you talked about the idea that you were able to run. um, I I ran right through this this because I didn't know really what it was till I, till the symptoms came out, everybody was getting it. And I said to, I, I know of a lot of friends of mine that had, had the symptoms back in late February, early March, when it was just coming out. And you know what? It just, to me, was a bad cough that I just, you know, it was like a tickle down in my throat, and it was so dry, Bob. That's the one thing. The flu, like, was only about three days. It was, you know, and I'm almost 60, so I'm really blessed. I mean, and I'm perfect. I didn't think about it anymore other than how, how I have to protect you know, do what I'm supposed to do. Follow the rules. Do you have a question you want to ask me along those lines? Well, were you, in, in terms of the symptoms, in terms of what you were feeling, were you winded? No, it, no. I just felt, I just felt like tired. Like mm. my normal runs, because I'm, I'm pretty fast. I'm kind of, I was training for the Boston Marathon right. at that time. And I was, you know, I was looking to run about 315, really quickly. I, I'm able to run quickly. So I, I found my, my running was not what, it just didn't seem right. I said, I just don't feel right. I'm not running fast. I, I, I just can't, I can't kind of like do what I normally am used to. But I said, ah, you know, I, maybe it's just this, this, this cold I got. Like I said, it was the cough that was so, you know, so different. Most people, when you get a cough, it's like a bronchitis-type cough. This was like I couldn't bring up any sputum, Bob. It was, it was just nothing in me. And, and, and I, you know, not but catching my breath, no. All I think at, at times at night, for a few days, I think it was difficult to lay down because I felt like, you know, I just, you know, I'm coughing so much. Not because I'm not catching my breath. And I know what you're talking about. I, I think maybe, Bob... What you're saying is because my, my, this attacks the lungs. For most people, get the lungs get attacked. And because my lungs are, are, are much stronger than I think most people, fortunately, I think doctors told me you fought it off. You fought it off beautifully. And not that you, I would recommend anybody to do that if you get sick by any means. I was one of the early ones, Bob, that didn't know I had it. And I only realized I had it until people were getting the symptoms. And, and I said, well, you know, this is crazy. I talked to a few doctors. They said, oh, yeah, you had it. You know, remember there was a time, Bob, if you remember, a lot of people were, were discussing they had these symptoms and, like, they didn't know if they had it. Right. And then the antibodies, uh, you know, they, when that, those tests came out, I got myself checked and, uh, you know, I realized I'm carrying. But we don't even know how long these antibodies last. So, uh, you know, you, you got you to gotta take it seriously. You got to make believe that you don't have it or you, don't, you never had it. And you just, we just got to wait for the vaccine when, when that comes out. But please, people, just wear the mask. Do what you got to do, and and and, and follow, follow what you're supposed to. You know what people, what, what the medical uh, experts are telling you. Don't don't go about it on your own because it's it's you know it's too much. On, we don't know about this still. Thank you very much for sharing you your insights it, with you us. You take care of yourself. And by the way, I'm great, and keep up the great work. Thank you. Be well. All right, 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. We'll take more of your calls. Open phones this first hour of our program this Sunday morning.
It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter on our program. This first hour of it, what we're doing is taking your calls. We haven't been able to do that for some time. I'm coming to you from the WFAN studios this morning. Hopefully you are well um, and practicing the things that we've been advised um, over the past couple of months as well. 877-337-6666 is our number. Let's go back to the phone. Some folks have been waiting for some time. That includes um, Lewis in uh, New Jersey. Good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Yeah. Uh, hey, Bob. I just want to give some uh, knowledge to people here. I'm actually in the uh, military service. I don't want to specifically say which, which branch. But then again, um, I just want to say something out, out there. It's it, It's... It's sad just to see what's actually going back up in the States. Everything that's going on with the uh, Black Lives Matters or the Blue Lives Matters, anything like that. I just, I just want to tell people out there just one thing, one thing only. Listen, at the end of the day, the human race is just a human race. I get it. We have to... Differential people in some sort of way uh, by dividing them of being, I don't know, white, black, purple, Hispanic, uh, Pacific Islander, anything. But at the end of the day, we're all American. And, for example, here in the military, we all go by one thing, one thing only. We all bleed the same color, which is green. And it, it actually hurts me a lot. When I see my brothers and, and, and sisters out there fighting for for us to keep the um, the same value that we live every day with the freedom, and then when I see the news, seeing everything that's going on back in the home states, it's just it hurts. It hurts because um, we don't see we don't see a differential on race. We see everyone is American. And um, it's, it's just that. I mean, like, I get it. Everyone has something to say about, for example, Black Lives Matters. I understand, you know what I'm saying? Back in um, 20, 30 years back, things was not, they were not normal. Normal, when I mean normal, I'm, I'm trying to explain myself as, um, the rights that they have now. But then again, at the end of the day, there's only one thing. We're all Americans, and um, it's one country. We cannot go back and forward and bashing our, our own self when we have women and men out there in other countries fighting for a life of the way of freedom we live today and then on. So, I mean, um, I just went ahead, give that up, and, and just tell people, at the end of the day, we're all Americans, and um, just keep us one. Well, thank you very much for your uh, service, first of all. And secondly, secondly, thank you very much for your call and sharing the insights that you have and your patience on the phone, too. Continue to be well. 
Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Right. You too. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. You want to join us. We've got open phones this first hour of our program this Sunday morning. We go back over to New Jersey to Little Ferry. Bob, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. What a pleasure to hear your voice again. <laughs> oh, my God. Every morning at 6 o'clock on Sunday, I turn on the radio, and I hear something like this. This is my to here. You interrupted the theme song, you know, oh, good morning. And we're talking to Alice Ferdinand from uh, Monterey, California. We're talk- I, oh, my God. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't wait to the day that this thing would come, that you'd be live again. Oh, my God. Nice impression, Bob. Okay. On the, on, on the lighter side, before I get to really why I called, the first caller mentioned the name Jane Oliver, and he said that he was listening to so much YouTube. So many people, particularly when we were stuck, quote-unquote, in the barracks of our homes, you know, nothing to do, but we would turn on to YouTube. So many of us got addicted to YouTube. And I did mention to you, if you remember a while ago, about a couple of young artists, and I I hope you followed through on that, because if you did, I I know, well, okay, enough said about that. We can just hint to the people that the names of those uh, uh, singers were Jane Oliver, I mean... uh, Angelina Jordan and Dimash, and two of these people are young people from around the globe that if you listen to them, you will get addicted to them, and not only are they wonderful singers, but both of them are extremely wonderful human beings. It's, it's, it's remarkable. He did mention the name Jane Oliver, and Jane Oliver, I happen to be friends with her, believe it or not, from years ago. And if you want to hear some divine music from the 80s and 90s, etc., go tune into YouTube and get a hold of Jane Oliver, and you will understand what beautiful music is really like. Hmm. Bob, uh, I really called, and I feel very strongly about this, is about the mask. We don't have any compassion from a national point of view. Let's not get into politics at all. But the point is we don't have any leadership that's obvious. And I want people to understand out there, in regards to masks, you don't have to listen to the president or wait for him to come across with a message. You don't have to listen to the governor. You don't have to listen to your mayor. You don't have to listen to anybody. Common sense says, wear the damn mask. It's not going to hurt you. They're pretty inexpensive. And wear them. And I want you to understand this. I think the biggest population that we have a problem with adhering to wearing a mask is the dudes, the dudes that are like women and men that are from 22 years old to 34, say somewhere around there. You know, I can handle anything. I'll get a couple of sniffles. Excuse me, sir and madam. You, I want you to think of yourself as a possible carrier because we understand how strong and powerful you are and nothing is you're going to succumb to no disease or anything like that. We understand that. You're wonderful. You're lucky. But at the same time, thinking yourself, think of yourself as a possible carrier. You may be a carrier that's carrying the disease. You don't even know it because you're so strong. But your germ is going to affect the vulnerable population out there who possibly can die because of you. And grandma and grandpa, they could possibly catch what you have. They may possibly die. And by the way, when they die, it's a very, very uncomfortable death. It's scary. It's horrible. 
And to give you an example of how that affects me, Bob, personally, the other day I'm at home, and I hear the, the machine going out of my lawn outside. I have a landscaper. So he's buzzing back and forth and buzzing back and forth. All of a sudden, the doorbell, the doorbell rings. So he's concerned about, uh, you know, I haven't paid him. Well, I says, well, you never gave me a bill. You know, uh, so I went inside to make a checkout. And when I went outside with the check, I was frantically writing the check, you know, right away. I wanted to give it to him, you know, so no problem with my landscaper. And I rushed outside without my mask on. Mm. So I'm out there in the front porch, and I'm giving him the check. And, of course, you know, when you give the check, you have a little uh, blah, 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 a little chit-chat there, right? I'm having a chit-chat with him, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me. I says, oh, my God, I don't have a mask on. Of course, he didn't. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, I got like a frightened feeling that went down my body that I was talking to this guy looking right at his face, and I don't have my mask on. So right away, I looked away, and I ended the conversation like in about five seconds, and I took care of that. But when I went in the house, I says, oh, my God, I can't believe the feeling that I got that because I didn't have a mask on, I got frightened for myself, you know, that I would catch something. And then even passing it on to him, if in fact, you know, I had something in me. And so it's so important, ladies and gentlemen out there listening and the people that you you are close to, to pass it on to them. Would you please tell everybody to wear a mask if we do that? Believe it or not, the economy, the unemployment, not the racial issue, of course, but so many things are going to improve. Just wear the mask, please. Very well stated, Bob. Thank you very much. Continue to be well. You too, Bob. 877-337-6666 is our phone number here at The Fan. Next up is Steve in Connecticut. Steve, good morning. Welcome Welcome to The Fan. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Um, I just wanted to call and say um, welcome back and thank you very much for uh, everything that you guys do. I've been listening to the station for over 30 years, and this is where I get most of the, the content on my day-to-day because I'm trying to stay away from all the stuff on television for the past uh, few months. Um, but I, that's really the only reason why I wanted to call. I was actually surprised to get through and wanted to thank you for um, everything you do and all the callers this morning. Um and God bless everyone, and just stay safe and wear the mask. Thank you. You as well. Be well. Thanks for your call this morning, Steve. Next up, we go to uh, Robert in uh, Levittown. Robert, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Hey, hey, Bob. How you doing? Doing pretty well, thank you. So, um, uh, honestly, uh, I was like, I got it at the beginning. Mm. Uh, I'm talking like March, like 17. Mm-hmm. Um, I hang out at a bar that I work at, and I've been there since my whole life. And someone in the bar gave it to someone. 27 people had it. Whoa. Yeah, it was bad. And this is not like a, this is not like a Rockville Center bar. This is like a Levittown bar. It's like older men who work, you know, who are retired. And like, we hang out. And it was scary. My father got it. Um, I know older men who, who've gotten it. And, and, it, and, and, these are, I don't know if you know what Town Oyster Bay is. Yes, I do. And it's very Republican. If I, just to say that, and a lot of people don't believe, a lot of people I know don't. Well, Long Island is Republican, you know, in some ways. And um, some of these guys got it. 
and it, it really threw something at them. Like there, like we there, there was a party there. So it all happened like uh, March, um, right before St. Patty's Day. They closed the bars down, and two days before that, there was a party, like a birthday party, a birthday party, right before St. Patty's Day. Then there was going to be St. Patty's Day. And I'm telling you, 27 people had it. I got it. I'm only 39 years old. So I'm, I, I don't know if it's the same as strong, but the guy was talking about me. I'm not blaming him, but I did. It was nothing for me. It was like five days. I was very tired. I got tested. But my father got it 14 days. And like, after like half, like 13 days, my dad thought he was dying. Mm-hmm. He thought he was dying. And if anybody thinks it's a joke, it's not a joke. Mm. You know what I'm saying, Bob? Yeah, I do. It's um, Don't it hang is, up on me, because you guys let everybody else talk, you know? It certainly is a wake-up call. Um, it, it, it really was, because, like I said, these, like, big, strong, retired, like, police officers, these firemen that I hung out with who thought that it was like a joke. Mm-hmm. They, they got it. Their wives got it. You know, and, and it kind of went real, it, it went, it went quick. It was like a month when everybody was sick. And this, I'm telling you, this is a bar I hang out every day. This bar, this bar is a very popular bar. And, um, it, it, it really was scary. And I'll tell you right now, I live with my mother. Mm-hmm. I live with my mother and father. Mm-hmm. My mother's 72 years old. My father's 69. My sister lived in the upstairs apartment. She's only 51. I'm 39. Irish family. Get what I'm saying? We all live together. My mother didn't get it. We were sharing bathrooms with my mother. My mother did not get it. She was lucky. She was lucky. No, 100%. 100%. She's still scared. Mm-hmm. She, you know what? She cleans everything. She cleans. She cleans all the time. And we have a lot of people come to our house. And, you know, the summertime, we started, like, being more relaxed for it. And I think that's going to be a bad thing for everything. Mm-hmm. You know? Robert, I'm glad that you're well now. Thank you very much for your call, your patience on the phone, too. we got to run here. Thank Thanks, you. Bob. Talk to you later. Yep. 877-337-6666 is our number. You want to join us in our discussion? It's Open Phones, this first hour of our program this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. We're uh, talking with you in this first hour of our program. Phone lines are open, 877-337-6666. We've got a full board of calls, so we're going to move things along here. We go first to Michael in New Jersey. Michael, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Thanks for holding on so long. Yeah, good morning. Let me give you some actual statistics, okay? In, in December 7, 1941, at Pearl Harbor, we lost 2,800 men. 9-11, we lost 3,000 people. World War II, 
the, uh, fighting the Japanese, we lost 100,000 people. Vietnam, we lost 55,000 people. This Chinese virus, and that's what it should be called, cost us 155,000 people. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but you want me to tell you what would make me feel good? I want vengeance. I want them to suffer and to pay for what they did to this country because they accomplished, they did to us what the Japanese couldn't do to us in World War II and what the Germans couldn't do to us in two world wars. They basically destroyed our country. And this is the fourth time this happened. Well, I don't know about anybody else, but I've had enough. I want them punished. Now, how do you punish them? Very simple. Number one, we owe them a trillion and a half dollars. That money is wiped out. We owe them nothing. Hello? Yes, I'm listening to what you're saying. You said, you said that was number that, one. Everything that they own in this country, they owned a Renaissance hotel, they own a large part of the world of Astoria, they purchased 95% of General Electric. Well, guess what? You no longer own it. I am taking it away from you. And the worst thing of all is, the absolute worst, what would drive them crazy is, I would go to the United Nations and say, never mind what the Chinese told you, that the Taiwan is not an independent country. It belongs to China. You are now going to admit Taiwan as a separate independent country. It is not part of China. It is a free China. And then I would tell, tell the Chinese, if you don't like what I did, choke on it. Because I'm going to surround Taiwan with American submarines. And maybe God will have pity on you if you try to attack it. But let me tell you something. I won't. I will bury you before I let you put one Chinese soldier into Taiwan. Live with it. Accept it. And don't ever, ever bring one of your stinking, filthy viruses to my country again because what this what i did to you just now is just the beginning and god better have mercy on you because i won't Alrighty, well thank you for your call i just lost the um screen that i had up here uh, so, oh, so that's um interesting and uh you know people get very very passionate in um these discussions so that's part of the reason why i opened the phones and um Try to let folks explain exactly what is on their minds. There's been a whole lot of people who have been carrying an awful lot of this around with them uh, for um, quite some time. There's a lot of people who are very, very angry, who are very frustrated. And um, again, we're providing the opportunity for you to be able to express yourself on this. Uh, next up, I believe we're going to Michael in Long Island. Uh, Michael, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, Bob. I uh, enjoy uh, your program. Thank you. Uh, I'm in my uh, 60s, and I remember very vividly the 1960s, the late 1960s. I remember the summer of 67 and the riots that occurred in Detroit, the riots, the race riots that occurred in Newark, and then the following year in April of 1968, the riots that occurred throughout the country in the aftermath of the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King. And I recall the anti-war demonstrations primarily comprised of American uh, white youth, and I remember the radical left, uh, Students for Democratic Society, the Weather Underground, and uh, some of the violence uh, that ensued as a result of the activities of the radical left. And in the ensuing approximately 50 years, I thought the country had progressed 
significantly. I never, ever thought that I would see the days of mass uh, unrest in America's inner cities. Yes, we have had uh, issues periodically in Cincinnati and in Baltimore and outside of St. Louis, but I never, ever thought that I'd see on a widespread scale the uh, unrest, looting, demonstrations, rioting that has occurred in America's cities uh, uh, during the last two months. And uh, secondly, I never thought that I would see what has been going on in Portland and Seattle, primarily among uh, young, disaffected youth. Uh, when I was uh, in my youth and uh, the police were known as pigs, I thought uh, those days were over. But uh, the police have been vilified. They have been criticized to a point where there's absolutely no respect for them. Now, I, like most uh, uh, Americans uh, were uh, was repulsed by what that police officer did in Minneapolis. There was absolutely no justification whatsoever for what he did. But what happened to the attitude towards police that exists in this country after 9-11, when New York City police officers rushed into the World Trade Center and were hailed as heroes, and athletes wore police hats, before the national anthem to show their appreciation for police, and people wore T-shirts uh, and other types of regalia praising uh, the New York City Police Department. We have gone 180 degrees from that point. There's something wrong in this country that we're that we're always at extremes. Why does it have to be like this? Why do we have to defund the police? Why do we have to? take police departments and tear them apart. This is sheer craziness. The lunatics have taken over the asylum in this country. There's something rotten in this country. It starts at the top with a president, and it's worked its way through this entire country. As I said, I never, ever thought I would see a repeat of the 1960s in this country, but it's right before our eyes all over again. And ultimately, I blame this president for creating this toxic environment in this country that has created uh, the atmosphere for the uh, dissent, the rioting, the looting that exists. Uh, I don't disagree with our president politically all the time, but I think he creates an environment in this country with his tweets, with all of his nonsense, that has created just mayhem here. He must be removed from office. I hope he's uh, defeated uh, in November and that uh, his country can heal and move on and return to some level of normalcy. Thank you very much. Thank you for your call. Be well. Thank you. Next up on the phone is uh, Jerry in Brooklyn. Jerry, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, my friend. I wish we were in a bagel store having locks and coffee because you laid it all out on the table. You put everything on the table this morning. And I always said I thought you had uh, maybe the most intelligent listening audience uh, on radio. Uh, I can get everything in in less than a minute, Bob. Um, you know, I feel we had, I'm going to stay away from politics. Um, I feel we've had three atomic bombs dropped on us. The pandemic, the economic issue that will probably be with us for years and the mental health issue just looming over the horizon. Mm. Um, I, I don't know how to repair a watch, but I know how to tell time. I'm not a therapist, but it's easy for me to see, and I'm including myself, that many people 
don't like to re- don't respond well to the unknown and the uncertainty, which can trigger anxiety that could lead to depression and that could obviously lead to more serious issues. And um, so that's something we're also going to have to deal with uh, down the road, along with everything else. Let me just say this about wearing a mask. And I keep this on my phone, and I wear a mask not only to protect me, but I would never be able to forgive myself if I knowingly passed it on to someone else due to laziness or or just not being considerate. And I wrote this, and I keep it in, in my cell, and, and this is what I know from what doctors have said. It attacks the heart, weakening its muscles and disrupting its critical rhythm. It savages the kidneys so badly that some hospitals can run short of dialysis equipment. It crawls along the nervous system, destroying taste and smell and occasionally reaching the brain. It creates blood clots that can kill with a sudden efficiency and inflames blood vessels throughout the body. My guess is for those inconsiderate people that don't like to wear and breathe through a cloth mask, they will like it even less breathing through a ventilator. And just for the record, only 20% wake up and walk away. And, and, and for those other people that I've heard, they, they've called this virus the baby boomer duma, and they think it's funny. And I say, and I've said, to them that I read a report out of China that, and they're doing uh, um, uh, follow-up uh, medicals on folks that, that uh, survived the virus, and they've learned people of all ages uh, that many of them have lost 20% of their pulmonary uh, lung function. So it's not just older people, and I realize most of the older people, most of the deaths uh, that occurred um, hit the older people, but we don't know the long-term medical effects for those recovering. So even if they're, I mean, just wear a mask, man. It's just so inconsiderate and so selfish, Bob. I'm ready to blow up when I see a person not wearing one. Thank you so much, my friend, and I love your show. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words and continue to be well. All right, next on the phone, we go to Chris and Beth Page, who's been holding for some time. Chris, good morning. Welcome to The Fan. Hey, Bob. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, listen, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Maher. Yes, uh, yes, I am. Yes, yeah, so anyhow, he had a brilliant, brilliant uh, point that he made as he closed out his show on Friday. He said, and it's like the dirty little secret, we as a country have to get in much better shape. We, you know, we're, is South Korea, their numbers are way down. And, you know, the countries that are in much better shape than us are doing much better against this. We have to look ourselves in the mirror. We are an obese country. We have poor diets. And I'm sorry, the dirty secret is that a lot of these people that are afraid, the ones yelling, oh, wear a mask, wear a mask. I get it. We should wear a mask. I totally get it. But we also should look ourselves in the mirror and get in better shape. That's how you fight these diseases much better. You know, the sad thing is, and he pointed this out, is we've put on weight during this pandemic. You know, instead of saying, hey, let's get in better shape, that's the way to go about fighting this thing. You know, we've sat and ate more, I guess, because of depression and this and that. We've closed down gyms. 
You know, instead of uh, gyms should have been essential places to be open. No, we opened bars and restaurants before we opened the gyms. It makes no sense. And he brought this out. And I wish the whole audience out there would listen to him. And it's a wake-up call to get in shape. Listen, fighting any, not even just this disease, fighting anything is much better when you're in shape, when you have a better diet. We all know this. So basically that's, you know, I just wanted to point that out. And I hope the listening audience gets that. And we look ourselves in the mirror and just try to get in better shape. And, you know, that's really all I wanted to say, Bob. Thank you very much for your call this morning, uh, Chris. Be, be well, too. All right, one final call, and it's got to be real quick. We are almost out of time. Rob in Connecticut, good morning. Welcome to the fan. Good morning, Bob. Great show. You had a great show for years. You provide a wonderful public service. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll bang it out real quick. Uh, you know, we're fortunate that we live in a country where we enjoy a lot of freedoms and rights. But two, two things that bother me is, one, the people that say they have a right not to wear a mask. Well, a lot of us have a right to want to live, so please wear a mask. And secondly, kind of piggyback on one of the previous callers, I hear, I hear a lot of people saying that wearing a mask is uncomfortable. Yes, but wouldn't it be a lot more uncomfortable being on a ventilator and being in a hospital for four or five weeks? And like you said, only 20% of the people that are on a, a ventilator for extended times come through it. You know, So, I mean, how, how could that be more comfortable than wearing a mask? And that's basically all I got to say. So please, you know... For everybody's sake, you know, be considerate of other people. Wear the mask. And it's not that uncomfortable. It's a lot less uh, uncomfortable than being on a ventilator, which is horrific. And that's it. Thanks, Bob. Thank you very Great much. Job. Thank you for your call. Stay well and your kind words. We're going to take a pause. Step aside for the gentleman Pete McCarthy's top of the hour rundown and sporting world for us. We've got another hour of our program to get to this Sunday morning. Today with hoops and hardball on the fan. It's later on today. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program after eight this morning. Long after nine, it's Ed Randall who's been talking baseball here on the fan. This hour of our program, we shift into a discussion with a gentleman who has joined us um, once before on this program. We had a very good discussion about AHRC New York City with him. He's the CEO of the organization. Marco Damiani is joining us on our program. Marco is a member of Mayor de Blasio's Nonprofit and Social Services Sector Advisory Council as well. Marco, good morning. Welcome to our program. Good morning, Bob. It's great to be back uh, talking with you today. I hope you've been well. Yes, I have. Same to you, I hope. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing pretty well, actually, as a matter of fact. Um, interesting, an interesting time in the world um, and also in this city. Because um, I'm just trying to, as best I possibly can, 
appreciate every day and also try to learn something from the experience of every day uh, too um, because there's just so much that comes rushing at us anymore uh, literally in the COVID-19 world in which we live. Let's talk a little bit about AHRC New York City at the start. We're also going to get into talking about um, the fact that we just recently celebrated the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, uh, too. How do you explain what AHRC New York City is all about? So, Bob, we're a nonprofit organization in New York City, one of the largest in the country, supporting people with disabilities. And uh, we have a great, great story. We were founded over 70 years ago by a mom in the Bronx named Ann Greenberg and had a son with uh, intellectual disabilities. Uh, we called it something else in those days, um, the R word, which I won't use. Um, and she really was a social justice warrior. She is somebody who would not hide her son away, as many moms and dads and families did in those days. They were told to institutionalize them or, or keep them home someplace. And instead, she put in a very short ad in the New York Post asking if other moms wanted to set up a nursery for their kids. And they did that. And a few short years later, um, they were celebrating this organization. Uh, in my office, I have a photo from um, the very early 1950s at the old Commodore Hotel of hundreds of people in tuxedos and gowns at a fundraiser. And 70 years later, we are supporting over 15,000 kids and adults with uh, intellectual disabilities um, on a regular basis, over 5,000 staff. And while we provide a lot of services, life cycle services, everything from preschools to places where people can live or get a job, um, supporting families and providing clinical services, um, I think primarily we're a social justice organization. And uh, we're proud to say that. Uh, we're associated also with a statewide a group called the ARC of New York and also the ARC of the U.S., which is uh, the largest national advocacy organization for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So uh, we have a great legacy, and we have great partnerships uh, both in the state and nationally. Okay. You just used a couple of interesting terms. And I always like to try to break things down, explain as best we possibly can in discussion how do you define what intellectual and developmental disabilities are? Yeah, it's a, it's a term I'm not crazy about, but um, um, it, it really helps us um, get funding for the organization, and it helps doctors and therapists kind of diagnose uh, uh, concerns and problems a person might have or needs. But basically, an intellectual developmental disability is a, a disability that is uh, characterized by um, significant limitations in intellectual functioning um, and or adaptive behavior, and it uh, occurs before the age of 21. So the listeners might be more familiar with autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, uh, epilepsy, um, other neurological conditions. These all fall into a general broad category of intellectual and developmental disabilities. I actually prefer the term neurodivergence, and I prefer it because one of our goals is to kind of soften the boundaries between who we are as human beings and, and what differences really mean. And uh, labeling somebody does have some small benefits, as I said earlier, about getting funding and uh, uh, diagnosing a condition that can be treated and helped. But 
I think our role at HRC New York City is also to say we are an amazing tapestry of New Yorkers and Americans. And just because you have a diagnosis or you look a little different doesn't mean you have any less to contribute to the world. And it also certainly doesn't mean you should be treated any differently. Uh, we all should be treated as equal. And I think nowadays especially that's resonating more and more in our country. When we're talking about the people who do the work of your organization, what sort of specialties do they have? What are, kind of backgrounds do they bring to the table in terms of the job? Well, you know, we're really lucky. Um, we've worked hard at it, too, but we're also very lucky uh, to have a very broad range of staff. Uh, the vast majority of our staff are um, direct service professionals, and this means that they work day-to-day in a variety of locations. As I said earlier, maybe it's in a group home, maybe it's in the community, uh, learning how to uh, navigate the transit system. Uh, maybe it's at a corporation teaching somebody how to become a valued member of that organization as an employee, or maybe it's in a preschool. But these DSPs, we call them DSPs, are really essential to our organization. They are what I call our most valuable asset. You know, for-profit corporations have products. Um, I don't want to be too coarse about that when we talk about nonprofits, but our most valuable asset are the people that do the work every day, the people that support the people. And we work very hard to invest in them, and they do an amazing job in promoting the social justice actions and narrative that we so strongly believe in. And I think especially now, in a topsy-turvy Dangerous world, frankly. They are really stepping up and have stepped up to be sure that uh, people that tend to be vulnerable because of disability are not just protected, but they are still actively engaged in daily routines and activities. Uh, They're still learning new things. So very, very valuable and broad spectrum of staff. And like New York City, they represent uh, a broad range of people that live in New York City, and we're very proud of that as well. A lot of clinicians also, social workers, psychologists, nurses. Uh, but the vast majority of our workforce are, are these direct, direct uh, support professionals. And actually, there's a um, celebration of, of, of DSPs in September. Uh, there's a week-long um, celebration from September 14th, um, uh, really recognizing the contributions they make every day to, to society. Um, often, this is an invisible workforce, and we're very happy to have the terrific staff that we do have. I mentioned in introducing you that you're a member of the mayor's nonprofit and social services senior advisory council. What is that experience like? You know, it's um, it's actually been very good. I I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. Um, mayor De Blasio initiated uh, these various sector councils to assist with reopening New York City, and uh, I feel very uh, fortunate to be called in to work on that for the nonprofit and the public health sector. And the, uh, the team that has been working in this sector is terrifically talented, in many ways uh, stared COVID right in the face. And these are public health leaders and nonprofit leaders in New York City, both government um, uh, individuals as well as people such as myself. And I was pleasantly surprised that we got into the weeds as much as we did We really talked about how we could do better. And I think anybody in any organization needs to be sure they never think they know it all. And this group certainly didn't. We learned a lot together. And I was especially um, encouraged to be part of this 
because frankly, our population, the population of people with uh, double disabilities, um, did not get the resources we needed. We really have suffered quite a bit in the first, I hope it's the first round. I hope it's not only, not only the first round, not, not the first round of, uh, of COVID. Um, and I hope that we don't see it again. But um, we really have had um, a tough time with the kinds of things you've heard about already. Uh, PPE access, um, we've had difficulty in, in also really getting access to some of the clinicians we've needed to, to manage the pandemic. It's much better now. We're in a lull, and we hope it stays there. But the sector really is now aware of our field, aware of the needs of people with intellectual disabilities, and I think we're much better prepared if this comes back. Part of the idea behind AHRC New York City is really about um, people, whether they be adults or um, children, with disabilities, kind of achieving or realizing their potential, isn't it? It sure is. Um, you know, I think that we often view people with uh, disabilities, especially kids, um, in a very charitable way, which is good. But I don't talk about our work as a charity. Uh, I've said a number of times already about social justice. And we really want mm-hmm. not just our staff and not just the people in New York City. We want everyone to see that everybody has an ability to contribute. So really our skill set is understanding how a person can really be the best they can be. And there are examples of that every single day at HRC in New York City where a person with a disability is achieving things um, that they didn't think they could achieve, and frankly, in some cases, stuff that we can't achieve. There are some very unique skill sets uh, that people with disabilities have often, and they've got to be tapped and realized, and opportunities got to be provided to them to be able to do that. Um, so uh, when we say realizing potential, um, it's a never-ending perspective, and it requires open-mindedness. It requires curiosity. It requires creativity, innovation to really get somebody to be who they can and should be to make this a better city. Marco Damiani, who is CEO of AHRC New York City, is our guest on our program on the fan this Sunday morning, this hour of it. And he's talking with us about the organization. I also mentioned in introducing him, he's a member of the Mayor's Nonprofit and Social Services Sector Advisory Council. Sports Edge with Rick Wolf is along after our 8 o'clock uh, top of the hour update. Um, let's do contact information for the organization, I guess, website, and do you have a phone number you can give out as well? Sure. Um, our website is ahrcnyc.org, ahrcnyc.org. There's also a lot of good COVID information there, by the way, uh, for nonprofits and others. We really produced, I think, a lot of good material on staying safe. Our phone number, our referral information center, is 212 212- Seven eight zero four nine nine one two one two four seven eight zero four four nine one. Okay, so the website is ahrcnyc. That's all. It's one word. dot org. Right. Okay. Now, when we're talking about your organization in um, twenty twenty, are there things that 
besides money that you could use that, you know, we may have somebody you're listening to our discussion today who might be able to provide a contact, something like that. Um, the other uh, thing is, sure. can, can you use volunteers? Yes, that's a great point. We can use money too, by the way, <laughs> but um, <laughs> couldn't let that one pass. But um, yes, absolutely. We have a, um, a strong volunteer program and uh, the, the volunteers that we have used and do use come from corporations uh, and communities all over New York City. And there are a lot, of, a lot of talented people in New York City. And when they give their time to us, uh, we learn. We provide uh, more value for the work that we do. Um, we get new connections, which sometimes does lead to money, by the way. And I think very importantly, they bring back to their neighborhood, to their business, to their company, a story to tell. So I think that the use of volunteers is tremendously important. Um, also, technology um, is obviously something that we've all relied on tremendously during the pandemic. And people that have those skill sets are especially important to us right now. Uh, even though we're very large, uh, we have a limited budget, and having people with good technology skills to help us um, really use our current platforms as best as we possibly can, or maybe access pro bono or um, inexpensive solutions. I don't mean just back office things. Uh, there are lots of amazing apps out there now uh, that can really help someone with a disability be more in the community, learning things, a better communicator. So I think technology and volunteers are two tremendously valuable things that, that, uh, that we can benefit from. And the information is out there, our phone number, our website. Please let us know if you're interested in supporting us and helping us through our volunteer program. So th contacts should be either through the phone number or through the website if somebody's interested in volunteering or yes. helping out in some other way with the organization. Okay. We'll take a pause in our discussion with you. Come back after a few messages here and talk more about the work of AHRC in New York City. We'll also get into talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act in our discussion with Marco Damiani on The Fan this Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning on The Fan. Sports Edge follows our 8 o'clock rundown of sports news. Pete McCarthy will be along with that after our 9 o'clock sports update. It will be Ed Randall who will be by talking baseball here on The Fan. We're in a discussion with Marco Damiani on our program. He's CEO of AHRC New York City. Talking with us, uh, we're going to get into talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act. He gave us a um, website and also a phone number for AHRC NYC. We'll repeat those items before we uh, finish in our discussion, too. Now, the ADA, or Americans with Disabilities Act, actually is... 30 years and one week old today because it was actually signed into law last Sunday. The 26th would have been the 30-year anniversary of that by uh, former President George H.W. Bush. The ADA and the significance of that piece of legislation, what has that meant in the lives of people who 
are experiencing who deal with disabilities. What has this meant for them? Well, first off, the ADA is the most comprehensive civil rights advancement for people with disabilities ever be enacted by the U.S. Congress. And it has had tremendous impact. Uh, Justin Dart, uh, who is an um, uh, American activist and advocate for people with disabilities, was uh, really a core driver of the ADA, finally being signed by President Bush. And he said that the ADA is absolutely essential as a legal and educational tool to achieve equality and employment. But the ADA is not equality and it's not employment. It is a promise to be kept. So we remain vigilant. There's, there's a, a great movie out, a, a, a documentary film called Crip Camp. came out early this year, won an award or two at Sundance Film Festival. Among the executive producers are uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. And it's about a camp called Camp Jened, J-E-N-E-D, up in Hunter, New York, in the Catskills in 1971. And it was a camp for teens with disabilities who came from all over the country. The first line of the film is a camper looking into the, ca- into the camera and saying, would you like to see disabled people depicted as people? This was an amazing film. I, I recommend it highly to your listeners. Um, the, the kids here had such an awareness of the world in which they lived. They said they knew they were being sidelined. They said they couldn't fit into a world that wasn't built for them. And there's actually one kid that says the world wants us dead. Mm. And when I see this film, and I'm reminded of the power of the ADA and the impact that it's had, I'm also reminded of the late Congressman John Lewis, who we've all heard by now, said so many times, make good trouble, make necessary trouble. And I believe strongly that the ADA, 30 years on, is still about making good and necessary trouble. If you go on to the Internet and Google ADA, you're likely to see photos of people with physical disabilities crawling up the steps of the Capitol to show how much needed to change. So we celebrate the ADA because it is a promise to be kept. But we also need to remember that there's so much more stuff to still be, do- to still be done. And true equality is extraordinarily precious, hard to attain, and hard to keep. So we celebrate the ADA because it is the law of the land, and it has provided such tremendous value to people with disabilities with much more to do. And if I may, just a couple of, of obvious things. There's a concept called universal design, which is architectural jargon for designing something so that anybody can use it, can access it, can right. benefit from it. So many of our buildings now have universal design components. We don't even recognize it anymore. And so we have seen a lot of the ADA embedded into society. Simple things as curb cuts would, would keep people in wheelchairs from traveling around their communities. A simple thing like that. We now see them everywhere we go. 
But still, there's much, much to be done. The employment of people with disabilities is far behind where it needs to be. There are great opportunities. We're part of that employment opportunity creation for people with disabilities. But only 31% of people with disabilities actually have a job compared to 75% of people without disabilities. And of that, 31% of people that do have jobs with disabilities, only 20% have jobs that are what I call inclusionary. They're in a job site. They're in an organization. They're in an office with people without disabilities. So there's tremendously more to be done. But this really is a seminal act of Congress and a very important step along on the civil rights road that we need to continue to focus on. Okay. Now, I want to back up for a second because that statistic almost floored me, and it should floor everybody listening to us, because the comparison that you made, if I heard this correctly, is saying that 31% of people with disabilities have jobs. 75% of people, I guess, without disabilities have jobs are employed. I mean, that kind of discrepancy right there, one would think should be alarming. And I realize that statistic, I'm assuming, is the result of progress over the years. It is. So it actually, um, it's, it, it actually was worse. It's much, much worse. Oof. Much, much worse. And, and I would say a lot of that progress has been made in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, it, it probably has gotten better. It has gotten better for sure in very recent years. Uh, companies are waking up. They're seeing the value of inclusive work sites, work settings, and those belief systems. 25, 30 years ago when a company hired a person with a disability, it was done primarily, as I said much earlier in the show, for charitable persons. We're, we're doing this person a favor. Mm-hmm. We feel sorry for this person. It, let's give a few people with disabilities a job. doesn't matter what it is. Let's just get them into the office so people can see we have people with disabilities here. That sounds cynical, and it is. It is cynical. I, I, don't, I don't say it was true in every instance, but we don't want, and people with disabilities don't deserve, token employment. They have tremendous, tremendous value to the workforce. And if we have an employer, when we find an employer that's creative, open-minded, and sees how their own organization, their own company, will be strengthened by a more diverse workforce, everybody benefits. So that means sometimes changing the job, a job accommodation, to give somebody who's maybe super smart, well, I can't walk. Um, or someone with autism who might have challenges interacting with coworkers, but they find the right position, they have the right support in the job, and gradually they become acclimated to the to the um, to the work site and to the office. So there's much more to be done. I don't want to diminish the importance of the impact and the and the the uh, success you've had so far, but that is. That's a really bad statistic, as good as it is compared to what it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. And it's one of the key areas we focus our efforts. Because when somebody with a disability, who often is on public assistance in some way, shape, or form, gets a job, they are now contributing 
to society, not just through the work they do, but through the income they earn. They are paying taxes. They're supporting the infrastructure of their city, their town, the country, as opposed to relying on benefits. And there are lots of complications in how benefits are provided these days. They actually disincentivize work to some extent. But that's the pivot we want. That's the pivot we need. There's no reason why people with disabilities can't work. They can, and they should. The corporate partners that you have, and I guess have been fortunate enough to develop relationships with, with um, how is that going? It's been good. We really have a, a wonderful team of professionals that approach corporations, work with corporations, provide training for corporations, enable access to job opportunities in corporations. We have, uh, in New York City especially, we have a very strong relationship with Salesforce, which I I think most listeners know is one of the the top uh, software development um, uh, companies in the the world. Uh, They do a lot of work in engaging customers. And Etsy, which, um, again, is a progressive uh, tech firm that, uh, that that sells all kinds of stuff on the website. Actually, it's been doing very well during COVID because we're all sitting around needing to do something. But the on-the-ground jobs are also extremely important in day-to-day relationships. And we in particular have a, a, a good relationship with um, hospitals in New York City, in particular New York Presbyterian Queens. There's a fellow there um, named Rommel who was an intern in one of our programs and coming out of high school. And in the school-to-work transition, he was hired by New York Press in Queens. And he worked through the entire pandemic. He's still working there. He didn't take one day off. And his supervisor said he really stepped up his game when he saw that families were coming in, the patients were coming in to the hospital without their families. He felt moved by that and decided he needed to be there. So the commitment that this fellow had and has to his position is exceptional. And it didn't start out, he didn't start out great. He had time and attendance issues. I don't know what kid coming out of high school into a job doesn't, but he worked hard. And there's so many, many stories like that. We need to have a, a team-based approach where we have open-minded uh, companies, that, again, are not just doing this for charity. They're committing to it, and they have targets, and they have mechanisms for including people with disabilities into their workforce. And there's a growing number of corporations that are doing this. So that's very positive. There's a lot of good going on, but still need for improvement. Mm. Because you look at examples like the young man that you mentioned, um, that can hopefully spur others in terms of on the corporate side. Yeah. to also be receptive. It's, um, it's a great program. There are various ways that these programs work. I won't get into the weeds too much. But in most instances, there are programs that we operate that provide support and training that the corporation doesn't have to provide until they hire the person. So if you got a job, give us a call. If you want to think about a job, give us a call because we can provide job coaches, on-site training for staff, and uh, discussions about how to be more inclusive in your work environment. 
reasonable accommodations and things like that. And the company doesn't have to invest a lot of money initially into that. We can help train. We can bear some of the cost of that through a variety of programs. And then ideally the person is hired and then really included in the day-to-day work. It's a win-win for everybody. You mentioned earlier a phone number and website. We were talking earlier about the idea of um, people who are interested in being supportive in some fashion or people might be interested in volunteer opportunities. Now that you've mentioned this uh, possibility for um, folks who are associated with companies, um, may have employment opportunities or even ideas about that, how do they reach you? So our website is AHRC nyc.org ahrc nyc.org and our referral information center which you can call for any reason we're getting to the right person is 212-780-4491 212-780-4491 and if I could just pitch one thing we do have a COVID relief fund and many organizations are, are struggling we're, we're doing pretty well Knockwood. But if you have any interest in learning about our COVID relief fund, our website has that information. And we're, we're working really hard to support our workforce at a time when it's been challenging to do so. So all of the money we're raising there goes to assist our workforce in some way, either paying extra for, for work that's more challenging because of COVID or supporting other uh, parts of our workforce. Okay, so that's all at ahrcnyc.org, or the phone number you mentioned is 212 780 4491. We're talking with Marco Damiani, who is CEO of AHRC New York City. He's our guest this hour of our program on the fan. After our eight o'clock, after the top of the hour updates, it is um, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program here on the fan. It is the Sports Edge program that follows our 8 o'clock sports update. And good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter from the studios of WFAN talking with Marco Damiani on our program. He is CEO of AHRC New York City. He's joined us this hour of our program. He's a member of the Mayor de Blasio's Nonprofit and Social Services Sector Advisory Council. And he shared an awful lot with us in this um, chat. I'm hopeful that some of the folks listening to us can be supportive of the efforts of AHRC NYC as well in our discussion. One of the things when we talk about employment uh, for people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities is higher education is very key to that. Can you talk with us a little bit about some of the steps that have been taken there? Yes. um, Thanks for asking, Bob. When we talk about innovation um, in any industry, any sector, any activity, it's always progressive. It's always building on something that came previously. And I think one of the more recent innovations in our field is young adults with intellectual disabilities actually going to college. This was something that nobody talked about um, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, And Virtually nobody went to college, and that's changed a lot, Um, not just because of us, but we've played a big role in it. Um, A little over 10 years ago, a young woman named Melissa Riggio, uh, Melissa um, is the daughter of uh, 
Steve Riggio. Riggio, uh, Steve, Steve is um, a former member of our board. He's on our foundation. But he also was vice chairman and CEO of Barnes & Noble and very committed to higher education. And his daughter, Melissa, extraordinary young lady, and had actually wanted to go to college. And she was going to be probably able to do it with some support. And unfortunately, she um, died of leukemia before she could do that. And Steve worked with us and very generously helped us start a program named after Melissa. And we now have hundreds of kids over the last 10 years who have attended four of the colleges in New York City that are in the CUNY Educational Network, College of Staten Island, Kingsborough Community College, Hostos Community College, and uh, BMCC, the Borough of Manhattan Community College. And these are young adults with intellectual disabilities who are like any other kid there. I guess they're not kids, young adults, going to classes, walking across the quad, making friends. And what's really extraordinary about this program is not just the fact that, that these kids who would have been seen as different are now really included in one of the most important transitional rituals in our life, attending college. I'm not excluded from that. But they have peer mentors. They have students without disabilities who help them navigate the college experience. And while the impact on the students with disabilities is tremendous, it's unbelievable what these kids are learning and doing and then getting out of college and getting jobs. But the students without disabilities, what they are learning about the power of diversity, about, as I've said several times on the show today, about being open-minded, about not being charitable for the hell of it, but mm -hmm. giving because there's a benefit to giving. There is a building of your own capacities as a human being when you give. And this has been one of our great recent successes. This is innovation in action. And we're not the only ones doing it. I, I often say that uh, I, we're great at what we do. We're very proud of our work. We can always do better. And there are many other organizations doing excellent work in this area. And the college programs for kids with uh, IDD, intellectual disabilities, has grown a lot. It's, it's, it's really a good thing, and we're doing our best to continue to expand it. What's it like when you see students, you know, grow their, I guess, in a way they're developing a bit of independence? They sure are. And um, in some cases, it's not easy for them. Mm-hmm. They really are anxious, understandably. I mean, without disabilities, you're actually going to college. <laughs> but, right? But, um, but there are some that can't wait. They just can't wait to get there. Right. So, you know, th this is where I think the danger is in labeling somebody. You get a monolithic view of who you think they should be because they have a diagnosis or because they're called a certain thing. Just like any other student, some are really anxious. Some can't wait to get there. Some thrive immediately. Some really have a hard time. And I think that's one of the messages here is that this, this, this view that we often have of putting people into boxes, it's not just damaging because it, it, it restricts the person's capabilities in being included in learning new things. It also sets the tone and an expectation that 
a certain class of people can't do something or are a certain way. So this program has really gone a long way, a long way to breaking down um, those barriers. And the fact that many of them now are in jobs is terrific. Last year uh, it was the 10th anniversary, and we were very fortunate to have a, a supporter who hosted a 10th year reunion mm. of all the students who have been through this program at the Harvard Club. What a great idea. And honestly, I cannot tell you how this turns things on its head when you have a couple hundred graduated students with disabilities at the Harvard Club with their families and some of the teachers celebrating this program. It completely flips things on its head and it changes expectations. It elevates expectations. It's a very powerful, powerful moment when, when we had that, that celebration. So we're doing our best to grow the program. Um, it's, it's something that we're very proud of. When we talk about needs and talk about services, we also have to take a look at um, people who are waiting for home community-based services. That's something that I know was examined in um, a piece from United Cerebral Palsy, the Case for Inclusion 2020. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah. Um, United Cerebral Palsy does a, a periodic um, paper, as you just said, Case for Inclusion, and they look at national trends. And it's important to say, too, that while I've recently been talking about students going to college, there are people with disabilities that have very, very significant challenges, physical, intellectual challenges. They can't do a lot of things on their own. And they rely very heavily on these uh, so-called home and community-based services that are funded primarily by, by state and uh, federal funds. And there are now waiting lists for these services uh, that are extraordinary. Um, as of 2019, a little less than half a million people were waiting for some type of home and community-based service to help them be able to do things more independently, to have fundamental supports and services in the home, to have access to longer-term care supports and services. So while so much has improved, in this country, I don't think we should have half a million people with disabilities waiting on a list to get basic supports and services, which would give them more access to society and improve their own, um, own well-being. So it's a, it's a problem. And it, it goes back to, I think, something that we need to do better at as a society. How we invest in our population, I think, is a key conversation that we have not been so great at in this country. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be political as I need to be. This is a bipartisan issue. How do we invest in Americans? And what are our expectations? And what can we do in the most efficient and effective use of those resources to have every person as much as possible contribute to their communities? And this is a, this is a, a blaring example of falling short. As good as things have gotten, we're still short. So, this kind of a number, just after the 30th anniversary of the ADA, is a clarion call for we got to do better. 
what was it like when the percentage of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities working in integrated employment was examined? You know, it's um, it's 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 such a fundamental component of how we should ideally be including people because of their talents, not because of how they look. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would say, oh, "I don't do that," but you know what? You do it. I do it. Um, there, there, there. There's been a lot of good work actually in recent years on exploring the biases you don't think you have. And again, I said said this throughout the show, if you're open-minded, you can discover more about yourself and about how you can be better, how you can be more accepting, how you can uh, be someone who can contribute to somebody else's well-being, even in the smallest way. So these integrated employment opportunities are critical as I said earlier, people with disabilities are employed at less than half the rate of those without disabilities, but they're only included 20% of the time. So these are fundamental, basic ways of improving our workforce, improving the value in the workforce, and having everybody um, have the opportunity they deserve in this country. With your staff um, being considered essential workers, um, not just in New York State, but across the country. Um, what does that mean for the work that you're able to do? It is the foundation of what we do. As I said earlier, our staff are our most, are our most valuable asset. We learned that in spades uh, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But they're not recognized the way they should be. The, the, the doctors, the nurses, the first response, unbelievable what they have done, especially here in New York since March. Incredible. We owe an incredible debt of, uh, a debt of gratitude to those people. But in the background, there are tens of thousands of direct support professionals helping people stay safe in their home, in their community, taking public transportation in early April um, to get to work, uh, exposing themselves in many cases to the virus. That's essential also. And we've gotten a little bit of traction now, both, both within New York State and nationally, to have this workforce designated as truly a professional workforce. And we are hoping and advocating very strongly that that happens so that we can be sure that as you move forward, that these direct support professionals are paid a living wage. The ability to pay a living wage in New York City is tough. The minimum wage has gone up, which is good. But these essential workers often have two jobs, sometimes three jobs. And we need more resources to be sure that they are paid what they should be paid to do the work that they do. And we know resources are tight. Absolutely, we get it. But look at what's happened in our state and in our country and our city in the last four to five months. We have to learn from this. We have to build upon what didn't go well and change it and also what went well 
we got to make it as good as we possibly can. And without staff like these, we can't do that. People with disabilities will be hurt. They'll be put off to the side. Um, in some cases, they'll die. So we need this essential workforce to be recognized, supported, and celebrated. You mentioned earlier September 12th through the 19th is uh, Recognition Week. Is that right? That's right. Direct Support Professionals uh, uh, Recognition Week. And uh, there's national celebrations. There's local things. We, we always do something uh, for quite a few things, actually, to celebrate our staff. And uh, I think this year, more than ever, we need to have them front and center for the work that they have done and will continue to do. Your newest school is opening next month or scheduled to open then. Um, we've only got a couple minutes left in our discussion here. Uh, what's that going to be like? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we actually educate about 1,000 kids with autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, and so on throughout New York City. And on Staten Island, we were approached by of the state education department and asked to open a school there. So fast forward, we found a location uh, with the terrific help of uh, Congressman Max Rose and Borough President James Otto um, down, in, uh, down in Tottenville, Staten Island. We're going through renovations right now, and we'll be educating about 100 kids there, preschoolers and elementary school age kids. There is a very high rate of autism in Staten Island, and so far as we are bringing these kids in and, and, and registering them, most of them have autism. So we're extremely proud to be part of the Staten Island community to help educate these kids, also give teachers and teachers' age jobs in Staten Island. And uh, we're hoping to open in September um, in some way, shape, or form, even if it's virtual distance learning for a little while. But we will be opening at some point, and uh, we're very, very happy to be part of that community. It's a, it's a big addition to, uh, to Staten Island. Certainly, congratulations in advance of that opening on that and also um, on the anniversary of the organization. Marco Damiani talking with us on our program on the fan this morning. He's CEO of AHRC New York City. We mentioned earlier the website and also a telephone number. Would you repeat that? And Sure. The uh, Referral Information Center line is 212 780-4491-212-780-4491. And our website is ahrcnyc.org, ahrcnyc.org. Marco, thank you very much for joining us on our program. Stay well. And certainly good luck with the organization. Great talking with you, Bob. Stay well also. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for our Fun Fest this Sunday morning. We're going to make way for... Gentleman Pete McCarthy. He really is a gentleman. In every sense of the word. I love when he's with us on Sunday mornings. After Pete, another gentleman comes along. Rick Wolf will be by with the Sports Edge program. After Pete's 9 o'clock update, well, um, let's just say things change a bit. Ed Randall will be by then. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 6. You know where. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. 
It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.